I have to tell you, I am really excited about our summer. I, I know that the fact is, everybody who makes that announcement feels like they have to tell you that it was Pastor Rich's idea to wear name tags. And I guess that's in case there's, you feel like you have to club somebody. They want to put somebody out there. Thanks, Ben. This isn't what I had in mind. (laughs) But I do believe that being one family means that we all ought to know each other's first name anyway. And I think the best way to do that is to put us all in the same room and put a name tag on all of us. And over about an eight-week period, we'll really get to know each other. And so I'm looking forward to it. Oh, they've made fun of me, and, and they've uh, played silly games, as you can see. But uh, it's going to work really great. You know, if you're here and you just say, I don't want to wear a name tag, that's okay, too. We're okay with that. Just don't be surprised if they ask you 20 times what your name is. So, uh, And it's a special weekend, isn't it? We were in prayer meeting before services this morning and someone was thanking God that we have the freedom to come and worship the way we do. And uh, Memorial Day is the reason for that. You know, I, uh, I remember when I was a boy, we called it Decoration Day. And it was called Decoration Day actually up until the 1960s. I think it was about 1962 when it was officially created as a holiday. But it had been done all the way since the time of the Civil War. And uh, I remember as a boy, I was largely raised by my grandparents. We would get in the car. We would take all these geraniums and we would go to the cemetery and we would put fresh flowers, um, plant fresh flowers, flowers on the graves of my mom and my dad and and uh, other family members who had already gone before us and and we do that in we celebrate this weekend to celebrate those who have died in war and one of the reasons we are able to come and worship the way we do is because people have given their lives Men and women have given their lives. And so it's uh, good for us to pause on at least one day a year and say, we remember that and thank you for your service to us. Let's bow together and pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that we may come and worship. We thank you, Father, that we're free to do it the way we wish the way you lead us to do it. And we thank you, Father, for every man and woman in the past. So far this year, seven of them. And just in the last two weeks, three of them have died protecting our freedom. And Father, we thank you today that we may come and worship you 
and for all of those men and women who've given their lives in the past to make this possible. Thank you today, Father, for your word. Thank you that you have not left us alone without a word from the Lord on how we ought to live our lives. Thank you, Father, that we may come to you and open the book and find out how we ought to live. So this morning, Father, our prayer is that you would speak into each of our lives and that you would do that where we live because each of us has a different experience, a different life, a different Ex, a, a whole process going on in our lives from, from family to personal experience. And so, Father, speak to us where we live and enable us, Father, to be drawn ever closer to you in these moments. And we'll thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. About 2,700 years ago, Isaiah was the mouthpiece for God. He spoke for God and he, he gave us an enormous prophecy. And one of the uh, parts of that prophecy is Isaiah 40. Isaiah 40 is a great chapter of scripture. Uh, it is Carolyn's favorite chapter of scripture. It is a chapter of scripture that explains the incomparable greatness of God. He doesn't get tired. He doesn't wear out. He doesn't get weary. He never runs out of energy. And uh, then you come to Isaiah chapter 40, verse 31. And I should say to you that Chapter 40, Isaiah 40, beginning at verse 28 and going through verse 31, and Galatians chapter 2, verse 17, going through verse 21, are very comparable passages. There is a sense in which you can't fully understand the Galatians passage. Until you grip, come to grips with this verse of scripture. It goes like this. Yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. And you ask yourself, what does he mean by that? Wait for the Lord. Does that mean when you get weary... When you get threadbare, that if you go out into one of the middle of one of these seed fields and sit down and cross your legs and fold your arms and wait for God to show up, he's going to. I don't think so. Maybe you want to pick a huge mall and go sit down in the middle of a mall. I don't recommend that probably end up in jail. God's not going to show up there either. So what does he mean? Let me finish the verse. For those who wait for the Lord, and by the way, 
That's the word Lord Yahweh. Uh, we just sang about that a moment ago. Will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. Circle the word wait. Because that's the key word here. You have to ask yourself, what does he mean by that word? When he says, wait for the Lord, is he asking me to uh, sit down and wait someplace and be patient in anticipation and God's going to show up and renew my strength? That's really not what it means. Um, The word wait is an interesting word. It's translated wait. There some translations have tried to put some other translations on it. The Hebrew word is the Hebrew word kava. Kava. If you want to spell that, it would be Q-A-V-A-H. And uh, kava. And, and the word means to twist or to intertwine something. It is a word which literally translated would say, those who twist the Lord. Those who twist the Lord. Uh, I want you to understand that uh, the word picture in this word is the idea of taking a single small piece of hemp and pulling on it and if you do it'll snap but if you take it with two and twist them together and three and twist them together and four and five and six and on and on soon you have an unbreakable piece of rope That's the word picture here. Is Isaiah just talking shop talk here? I don't think so. Isaiah is talking about life here. What the Apostle Paul is talking about in Galatians chapter 2, spiritually speaking, Isaiah is talking about physically and emotionally speaking. And the result is, is that what God is saying is that those whose life is intertwined with Yahweh, they will gain new strength. So the more intertwined we are with God, the more strength we get from God. There's an exchange. God's strength for our strength. Sometimes we are weary. Sometimes we are tired. And God says, I will give you strength. But he's looking for people whose lives are intertwined with his life, whose character is intertwined with his. So when you and I are threadbare, tired, and weary, we have a source of power outside of ourselves on which to draw. And that is the power of God. Now I'm going to use that plain, simple illustration through the message this morning 
because it becomes extremely important to everything that the Apostle Paul is saying in a verse that many of you have already memorized. The beauty of it is this morning is that I'm talking about a lot of very familiar scripture. And uh, it's scripture that many of you have talked about and memorized in your past. So let's take a look at our outline. Point number one is justification is not improved or aided by law works. This becomes, this statement becomes the theme of the of of the book of Galatians. Justification can't be improved or added to by anything that the Judaizers would bring to the table. And as a result, we come to our text in verse 17 and 18. Paul says this, But if, while seeking to be justified in Christ, We ourselves are found sinners. Is Christ rather a minister of sin? May it never be. And I know you're saying to yourself, what on earth is he saying? So let me explain. If while seeking to be justified in Christ, remember the Jews, Paul is talking about Judaizers. And ultimately, they're going to come to the place where they want justification and they're going to want it in Christ. And what happens when they come to Christ? They're found to be sinners. They're found to be imperfect. They're found to be breakers of the law. And they are found to be sinners and Christ they would say, the Judaizers would say, is a minister of sin. In other words, because Jesus said, you are saved by Christ plus nothing, you don't need the law, the Jews said he was encouraging people to sin because he told them not to keep the law. He told them they didn't have to keep the law. So he's, they're saying, Therefore, he is a minister for sin. You might want to circle the word minister. It's translated in this text. The Greek word is the word diakonos. It's a word that's not translated in other texts. It's the, it's the word that's translated deacon, diakonos, deacon. And a deacon is a minister, a servant. The word literally means servant. And as a result, boards of deacons ought to be people who serve people. And so uh, here they are saying that because Jesus encourages people not to obey the law, he's causing people to sin. Paul says, may it never be. For if I build what I once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. What he's saying when he says, if I uh, build what I once destroyed. Remember Peter? Peter all of a sudden decided by a vision of God, it was okay to eat anything. So the, the law on dietary stuff 
was all gone for Peter. He destroyed it. What does he do? He rebuilds it. When he goes to the Judaizers in, in uh, uh, Antioch and he, he eats only with the Judaizers, he rebuilds it. And he says, I prove myself to be a transgressor. So Peter became a transgressor. That's why Paul had to, pre- had to approach pre- Peter. Circle the word sinner. Circle the word transgressor. I want you to see the difference in those two words. Sinner emphasizes not obeying the letter of the law. Transgressor emphasizes not being true to the spirit of the law. And see, the Judaizers were good at obeying the letter of the law, but they forgot the spirit of the law. And we're going to talk about, in the coming sermons, we're going to talk about the spirit of the law, why the law was there, what it pointed to, what it was supposed to do, what it was supposed to accomplish. And what what, uh, uh, Paul is saying here is that justification is an act of God whereby he declares the believer or the believing sinner righteous in Jesus Christ. Now, um, justification, the word in Greek for justification is a legal term. It's a term which means that there is a judge on a judge's bench and that judge makes a declaration. And the idea is that God is the judge and God points down at you and me and God says, you are acquitted. He says, you are not guilty and you are justified. And once you are justified, Nobody can take that away from you. You can't even take that away from you. Remember we said, it's different from forgiveness. He's not talking forgiveness here. It's different from pardon. He's not talking pardon here. He's talking justification. You are found not guilty forever and ever and ever. And I know this is feeble but it's the only way I know to explain it. That when God looks at you and me, he looks through a film of the blood of Christ and what he sees on the other side is a justified, reconciled, sanctified, redeemed, glorified individual. And every time God looks at you and me, that's the way he sees us. You and I want to live for God, but not because he's going to punish us, because life is better when we live for God. I will never forget Tony Fontaine a hundred years ago. Well, it couldn't have been that long because I was alive. I remember him saying, he was a a singer. uh, And uh, I remember him saying, if I wake up after I die and I found out all of this was a fake, he said, I still would have lived a better life on earth because I knew Christ. And that's really what our spiritual life is all about. 
It's about the quality of life that we live. And so justification is something where God declares that we are just, that we are acquitted, that we are not guilty. But we have to be careful with that because justification is not a license to sin. That's why I say any sin we commit is done by choice. See, God doesn't take our tendency to sin away when we are converted. We still have this old nature. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But the old nature doesn't know anything but sin. And as a result, the old nature constantly wants to sin. And any time we sin, we do that by choice. We have to understand that. We're not forced into it. See, from conversion to death, there is this constant battle within us. When we're converted, God puts within us a new nature. The Holy Spirit comes in. The Son comes in. The Father comes in. But when we are born physically, we get from Adam this old nature and the battle begins when we're converted between the old nature and the new nature. And the Apostle Paul says, the things I want to do, it seems like I can't do. The things I don't want to do seem so easy to do. Because this is the battle of the old nature going on. See, God's righteousness should become the trademark of our character. So what should people see when they see us? They should see the character of God. They should see the holiness of God. This is where the twisting together with God becomes a reality. This is where Isaiah's kavah takes place and we are intertwined with God so tightly that we show the character of God rather than our own old nature. So let's take a look at point number two. Salvation means that the believer has died to the law system. Notice what Paul says here. He says, for through the law, I died to the law. Through the law, I died to the law. Now, I know you're asking, what on earth is he trying to say? Well, here's what he's trying to say. One day I was born. I was given the name Saul of Tarsus. And the first thing that was put before me was the law of God. And I was told from birth, my job was to keep the law of God. And you know what? I worked every day of my life to keep the law of God. And suddenly one day, I realized I could not do it. By the way, there's three kinds of law in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament. 
First, there is God's moral law. And then there is civil law. And then there is what we call religious or ritual or what I call uh, uh, sacramental law or uh, 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 ceremonial law. Ceremonial law. Civil law and ceremonial law both change. They change by culture. They change by people. They change in the Bible, I might add. But God's moral law never changes. Never. As a result, I could say to you, you keep God's moral law. I would give you till this time tomorrow. Would you be able to do it? No. No, some of you are going to break God's moral law before you walk through the doors. and Before you walk out of this room. You're going to have some nasty thought about somebody or something or something or other. And the result is you're going to break God's law. Paul is saying, I came to a point in my life where I understood I could not obey the law of God. And as a result, I finally asked myself, if I can't be righteous by the law, there must be some other way for me to get righteous. And then I found the other way. And the other way was Jesus, and I became dead to the law. That's what he's saying. He's saying, through the law, making me understand I couldn't be righteous by the law, I found Christ, and now I'm dead to the law. But notice what he says. Circle the word that. It's a purpose, what we call a purpose statement. In order that I might live to God. Those words, in order that I might live to God, become the definition of kavah. They become the definition of being interwoven, intertwined with the character of God. These words become an understanding of what kavah really means. Living to God. See, when Paul said he died to a thing, he means he ceased to have any relation to it. He has no further claim on him. It has no further control over the Apostle Paul. He's dead to the law, and the law no longer controls his actions from day to day. Paul's freedom from the law was that he might live to God. And I think that phrase identifies why Isaiah suggested that we have to be ever intertightly woven into the character of God so that when the stress comes, no matter what it looks like, we don't snap. I can't think of a better illustration to show what a strong spiritual life looks like. Out of all these years of ministry, I've seen lots of people 
I've seen them get saved. I've seen them grow for 20 years. And after 20 years, they deal a lot differently with sin than they did when they were first saved. And the reason is life got intertwined. They grew in the spirit of God. They yielded to the spirit of God. They came to know the word of God. And as a result, they got stronger and they didn't sin as often or as frequently or as as badly as they otherwise might have. See, the purpose of grace is not to give us freedom to sin, but to give us freedom from sin. So the more interwoven we become, the closer we become to God, the more we live for God, the more we are able to be freed from the sin in our lives. And I understand that everybody's sin looks differently. Yours looks differently than mine. Uh, Mine looks differently than yours. Uh, The result is, is that we can get more and more free from it as we become more and more tightly interwoven with the God of the universe. Let's take a look at point three. Salvation also means that the believer is alive in Christ. The believer is alive in Christ. Notice these words in verses 20 and 21. Many many of you have memorized them. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. I have been crucified with Christ. Uh, Crucified, I have to take a minute to explain this word to you. Crucified is the Greek word sustarao, sustarao. In this case, now I know you're going to forget this as soon as you walk out the door, but bear with me, will you? In this case, it is used in what we call a perfect active indicative. Now, uh, I know you forgot everything about uh, English grammar, and I know that there is no perfect tense in English, really. But the perfect tense in Greek is very important. Uh, Many translations translate this, I am crucified with Christ. The proper translation is the New American Standard Version, which says, I have been crucified with Christ. The perfect tense does this. First of all, it says it is past completed action. That's why the NASB says, I have been. It's a done deal. It's past completed action. I have been. You have a similar thing. Uh, Having been justified in the book of Romans. I have been. It's done. It's settled. The second thing that the perfect tense does is that it is always past completed action with a present existing result. You can't shake the present existing result. It's there. It doesn't go away 
because you would like it to go away. It doesn't go away because you fight it. You can't fight it. There is always an existing present result as a result of the perfect tense. So I have been crucified with Christ. It's done. It's complete. And what is the present existing result? And the life I now live in the flesh. Because there will come a time when we don't live life in the flesh, won't there? There will come a time when we live life in a new body. In a spiritual body. Not a flesh body. The life I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God. So it is not I who any longer lives, but Christ lives in me. The present existing result is that I'm not in charge anymore. It's Christ in me. You say, how come you always say you're indwelt by the Son? Because that verse says I'm indwelt by the Son. Not just the Holy Spirit. The result is, is that the existing, the present existing result is that I am living a life that is being lived by Christ through me and the life which I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. What an incredible concept. You have to try to grasp that. You have to try to understand what he means when he says he's been finished, done, crucified with Christ. And Christ moved in. And when Christ moved in, Christ took over. See, he was so unified with Christ, so linked to him, so a part of him, that Christ's own crucifixion became Paul's crucifixion. Christ's crucifixion became Paul's crucifixion. He no longer lives a self-centered life but a Christ-centered life. He is now living a life that Christ lives through him, not a life that he lives through Christ. We often get the idea that I can live life through Christ. That's That's not the way it works. I don't live life through Christ. Christ lives his life through me. That's what Paul is saying here. So do not nullify the I do not nullify the grace of God for if righteousness comes through law then Christ died needlessly Paul is saying law is not a part of the picture only grace and that's what we've been saying all along he he says this in other places that Christ died needlessly uh In fact, in the book of Hebrews, and I tend to think Paul wrote Hebrews. That's a discussion for another day. 
But the fact is, is that there he says, if you think you can lose your salvation, there's only one way to get it back, and that's crucify Jesus again. Because his death was needless. It was useless. So, he's unified with Christ. It's not a self-centered life he lives anymore, but a Christ-centered life. And that's a good trade to make. A.W. Tozer puts it this way. I like the way A.W. Tozer puts it uh, in his book, uh, A Knowledge of the Holy. He says that people who are crucified with Christ have three distinct marks. Go ahead, Bob, two more. One more now, there. Two distinct, uh, three distinct marks. The first one is they are all facing the same direction. I can't think of a better illustration of one family all facing the same direction. People who've been crucified with Christ. The first thing is they're all facing the same direction. The second thing is they can never turn back. And the third thing is they don't have any more plans for their own lives. See, when you've been crucified, even if there's still a little breath in you, you don't say, oh, I think I'll go see that movie tomorrow. You don't have any more plans for your own life. The only plans you can have is the plans for the person being crucified next to you, and that's Jesus. See, any attempt to earn by merit what God gives in mercy is to frustrate the grace of God. And that's what he means when he says, Christ died needlessly. Law says do. Grace says done. By grace you have been saved through faith. So the only gospel that saves is the gospel of grace, the grace of God as revealed in his son, Jesus Christ. Someone defined grace this way. God's riches at Christ's expense. God's riches at Christ's expense. And that's some... That's a way to define this whole concept of grace. So as you prepare to go to communion, let me ask you a few questions. Here they are. First of all, ask yourself, have I been saved by the grace of God? That's a good question for us to ask. There just might be somebody here who would not be able to give an affirmative answer to that. There might be somebody who might not be able to say, yes, I know if I died today, I would immediately go to heaven. There might be somebody who's not sure they're saved. And I would say to you today, there's only one way to get saved, and that's through grace in Jesus Christ. He did it all. The only thing he asks of you is belief. And how do we put that in normal terms? I would say you simply have to say, God, I know 
I admit that I'm a sinner. God, I agree to turn from my sin. God, I acknowledge that your son Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead to forgive my sin. And God, I accept in these moments your son Jesus as my personal savior. That's as simple as I know to put salvation for you today. You use those words to accept Christ and he will come in and indwell you. The second question I would ask is, am I trying to mix works and grace? Am I trying to mix law and grace? It gets a lot more sophisticated in our world. We're not talking circumcision. We're not talking killing bulls on an altar. But some people do believe they get saved by getting baptized or they get saved by becoming a member of a church or they get saved by giving money to a church or something of that nature. Those are all good things. Don't misunderstand me, but not for salvation, for spiritual growth. The next question is, am I walking in the liberty of grace? Understanding that grace is not freedom to sin, but freedom from sin. And the final question is, am I walking uprightly according to the truth of the gospel? In other words, as you go to communion this morning, perhaps you want to ask yourself, how tightly woven am I with God? How close am I into the character of God. When you go to communion today, ask yourself, is my relationship with God too loose? Do I tend to snap when I get weary and tired? And can that relationship be tighter? And perhaps there may be a few of you who in your heart of hearts, you would know beyond the shadow of a doubt there's something that you could either cut out or add in that would make you more interwoven into the character of God. Take care of that this morning. That's what Paul means when he says, examine yourselves before you take communion. Let's pray together. Father, thank you today for this salvation given to us. It is amazing that we have been crucified with Christ. It is amazing that the present existing results are beyond our imagination. So, Father, lift us up. Come underneath us. Give us the strength through the interweaving that we need to accomplish your will for our lives. And in the process, draw us closer to yourself 
as we take moments to remember the body and blood of our Redeemer in this awful crucifixion. Thank you today, Father, for what we have in Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.